Well, please do be turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12 after we re- as we return to studying Mark after about a month. And as we do, I want to note that you've probably all heard the saying, more is caught than taught. Or perhaps the similar saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. Those sayings are seeking to convey that there's more than one way to communicate truth. Truth may be communicated by words, but also by works. Truth may be declared, but it may also be demonstrated. Truth may be heard, but it may also be seen. And no one is a better example of that than our Lord Jesus Christ, who both taught the truth and by his life demonstrated the truth because he was and is the truth. So remember when Jesus would say, I am the light of the world. And then he turned around and opened the eyes of a blind man. I am the bread of life. And then he would illustrate it by feeding 5,000 people with a, a few loaves of bread. I am the resurrection and the life. And then he proceeds to raise Lazarus from the grave. He says at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark that in him the kingdom of God has come. And what have we seen in our study of Mark? But kingdom power demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ as he heals diseases, as he casts out demons with a word, and as he raises the dead. And the passage that we come to this morning is another example of Jesus not merely declaring the word, but demonstrating the word in his life. As you you are turned to Matthew 12, remember that the last time we were studying Mark, or Mark rather, Mark 12, I hope I said Mark at the beginning, didn't I? That in verses 38 to 40, the Lord has sounded a warning about the scribes. The scribes were the teachers in that day. And Jesus is warning his people that they are dangerous guides. And remember, he has given them some of the symptoms of their danger. They are men who love respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They coveted the places of honor, the seats of honor in the banquets. They made long, flowery prayers to impress people with their religiosity. These were symptoms of dangerous spiritual pride. He also reveals their motives. He says they do these things for appearance sake. They're more concerned to make a good show in front of people than they are to please God. He also mentions their end. He says at the end of verse 40 that they will receive greater condemnation, indicating that if you follow them, if you imbibe their teaching, you may suffer the same condemnation. But how could the people know for certain that these were bad guys, that they were not good teachers, they were not good guides. You see, the symptoms will raise suspicions. The motives they had and the end that they would suffer are known best to God. But Jesus gives us the real clincher that these are not reliable teachers when he says they devour widows' houses. Their treatment of widows should have left no doubt in the minds of the people that these were not trustworthy guides. They were not good representatives of the kind, loving, compassionate God of Israel. Consistently throughout the Bible, God presents himself as the advocate of the widow, 
In the law, he instructs his people, don't glean your fields to the very end, so that if a few sheaves drop, they'll be there for the widows and for other needy people. In the writings, the Psalms and Proverbs, God pledges pledges to establish the house of the widow, to support the widow and the fatherless. In the prophets, true religion is presented as defending the orphan and pleading for the widow. And remember what James says in James 1.27, true religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So God is the advocate of the widow. God is the defender and helper of the widow. But these scribes were doing the very opposite. They were taking advantage of these poor widows. They were plundering their estates. They were oppressing them in their affliction. This was absolutely contrary to the character of God. And so Jesus teaches by way of verbal warning that these were dangerous guides, but now he's going to teach by way of visible demonstration. You see, he's the true teacher. He is the true representative of the God of Israel, of God his Father. And now he's going to illustrate how widows ought to be regarded and ought to be treated. Because in the event that follows, that we will study this morning, Jesus is going to call attention to a poor widow. But rather than view her as some object of contempt or someone to be taken advantage of, he's going to call attention to this widow as an object of esteem and, if anything, one to be emulated. Our text is Mark 12, 41 to 44. It says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. I want us to see three things this morning. Jesus observes. Jesus observes the appearance of things. And then Jesus observes the reality behind the appearance. First, Jesus observes. Look at verse 41 again. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing. This is a beautiful and somewhat unusual picture of our Lord Jesus painted by these words. He sat down and began observing. We're not accustomed to seeing Jesus in a passive mode especially in the Gospel of Mark. Mark was written for the Romans, and Mark accommodated to the Roman temperament. The the Romans wanted action. And so the Gospel of Mark is an especially action-packed gospel. It's long on on the deeds of Jesus and short on his discourse. There's a lot of activity going on in the Gospel of Mark. And we've grown accustomed to seeing Jesus in the Gospel of Mark in an active mode. He's teaching the crowds. He's feeding the thousands. He's casting out demons. He's wrangling with his enemies. Now, once we did see him asleep in the boat, but that didn't last long. When he was awakened, he rose, and with a word, he stilled this raging storm. But here's a glimpse of Jesus that we do well to take note of. He sat down and began 
observing. I think it's safe to say why he sat down. Remember, all that we have studied in recent weeks happened on one day, Tuesday before his death. He has had enemies coming at him from every side, from his rear, from his front, from his right flank, from his left flank, one group of enemy after another coming, trying to find some chink in his armor, some grounds for accusation against him. That was emotionally and physically wearying to Jesus. And we must remember that despite the fact that Jesus is fully God, he's fully man, he's fully human. And can you imagine yourself enduring such a barrage from your enemies, one right after another? There's only so much in our emotional tank, right? Before we need to be replenished. Don't you get to that place where you're just wrung out? Now, some of you have more energy than others. Some of you are extroverts and you thrive on activity. Others of you are introverts and it's like, you know, you go like this and then whoop, you drop off. I'm done. You know, there's only so much emotional energy in the tank, and Jesus is fully man. So it is not surprising after a day like that that he just wanted to sit down. But while sitting down and observing is in one sense a passive activity, in another sense it's very active. When the text says that he sat down and began to observe the word observe is the Greek word theoreo, from which we get, any guess, the word theater. And it means to be a spectator, to look at, to behold, but it also means to view attentively, to view mentally, to discern. In fact, the word theoreo, when it's compared to other words, Greek words for seeing and looking, the lexicon, the Greek lexicon says this, theoreo is used primarily not of an indifferent spectator, but of one who looks at a thing with interest for a purpose. Theoreo would be used of a general officially reviewing or inspecting an army, not somebody just watching a parade go by. You've seen those pictures of a military man going down the ranks, inspecting his, his troops, making sure they're dressed properly, they're standing in proper attention, right? That's the kind of, of meaning this word theoreo has. So the observing Jesus was doing was not an idle observing. His observations were not made with a glazed eye and with his mind in neutral, just watching images go by. His observing was with a keen eye and with an alert mind. The same word is used in John 6.40 when it says, For everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Everyone who theoreos the Son, not a casual look at Jesus, but beholding him, contemplating him as the one who, the very one who could give me eternal life. It's the word used in Acts 17 when Paul is walking down the street in Athens, and it says he was theoreoing, he was observing the city full of idols, and it provoked him to paroxysms, as the Greek word has it. He was filled with a zeal for, for God when he saw the idolatry that was the result of him observing the city full of idols. So Jesus sat down and began observing. And so for a few moments, I want to call your attention to Jesus, the observer. He was a keen observer. He was acutely aware of what was going on around him. Think about other places that we've seen in the gospel where Jesus is alert in Mark chapter 2, when he says to the paralytic, 
Your sins are forgiven. And then we read in Mark 2, 7, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves. You see Jesus' alertness to what's happening. In Mark chapter 3, he comes into the synagogue. There's a man with a withered hand, and his enemies are standing at a distance, no doubt with squinty eyes and folded arms watching him. And it says he looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He was perceptive to what was happening in them. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus comes to the crowd and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd and he's moved with compassion. He perceives their spiritual need. A couple chapters later, he's been teaching and he says, I that the people are hungry. They've been with me a long time. And, and he's alert to the fact that they have physical hunger. He's alert to their spiritual needs. He's alert to their physical needs. So Jesus was an alert observer of what was going on around him. He was a socially aware man. He was not obtuse. He was not dull. He was not oblivious to what was going on. And brothers and sisters, we are called to be like him, aren't we? In every way. And so, for a few moments, I would just call you and myself to be alert observers. Jesus sat down and began to observe. How observant are you? How observant am I? How can we become more alert observers of what's happening around us? You know, the major factor about whether we care about what's going on around us is whether we care about the people around us. A verse I often quote is 2 Corinthians 5.14, where Paul says that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Before we were Christians, we often were very observant of our needs and our concerns. We were very alert to what I need and the way I need to be treated, weren't we? But it's an amazing thing, and so many Christians can testify. When they came to Christ, all of a sudden, they became aware of the needs of others around them for the first time. Like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, I'm a man of unclean lips, and oh, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Isn't that your testimony, like mine? self-absorbed, self-centered, alert to my needs and my wants. But when Jesus saved us, all of a sudden he turns us outward. There are needs out there that people have. And I'm all of a sudden alert to and concerned about the needs of others. That's where alertness begins. You're not going to care about what's going on around you unless you care about the people around you. And for that, we need the salvation that is in Jesus. Otherwise, we will live totally self-absorbed, self-centered lives. But then even as God's believers, as God's people, we need to become more observant, don't we? As husbands, we need to become more alert to the needs of our wives. I cited yesterday at the wedding, 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands live katanosin according to knowledge with your wives. After 40 years of marriage, I, I still need to grow so much in being observant to the needs of my wife. I'm still a poor student of my wife. We need to become more observant of our wives and their needs. Wives, you need to become more alert 
to the needs of your husband, if you are to be like the Proverbs 31 woman who does him good and not evil all the days of your life, you need to be observant of his legitimate needs. As parents, we need to be observant of our children. What are they reading? How are they spending their time? What company are they keeping? What friends are they hanging out with? What sinful habits are forming in their lives that we need to begin to address? Positively, what encouraging signs of spiritual life are in them? Now, some of you have shared with me some of the encouragements you're seeing in, in your children, that this one is interested in this and asking this question and being concerned about this. Be alert to that. Your spiritually awakened children what can you praise them for? What are they doing well that you can give them legitimate affirmation and praise for? What gifts and talents do I see in my child that might help me to give direction in life for them if they're sons, perhaps, or even daughters, vocational direction? So we need to be alert. As brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, we need to grow in our alertness to one another. We're told to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. How can we do that unless we're somewhat in tune with the joys and the sorrows of one another? Jesus sat down and began observing, and we need to become more observant. How about in the workplace? Are you observant there, observant to your testimony? How is it being received? How are you being perceived? Are you being salt and light? Are you being respectable? Are you serving your fellow workers in the workplace? Are you being observant of your testimony and how it can be improved in the workplace? So Jesus observes. We need to become more observant. But Jesus observes also the appearance of things. The first thing to be observed is the facts, the appearance, what is on the surface. And look at verses 41 and 42. He sat down opposite the treasury and began observing, what was he observing? How the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Jesus not only observed, he was observing the appearance of things. He had sat opposite the treasury the treasury was part of the court of the women. And I read that there were 13 trumpet-shaped collection boxes. Each one had an inscription which bore, indicated the use of its contents. There were offering boxes to provide for certain, pay for certain sacrifices, to provide incense, wood, or other gifts for the temple service, others to support the poor. And so the money was collected to be used for various ways for the things needed for the temple service, as well as the support of the poor. And what Jesus observed was this, that many rich people were putting in large sums. They were putting in much. But by stark contrast, this one isolated poor widow puts in two very small brass coins. The word that describes her, she is poor. It's the Greek word ptokos, which comes from the verb ptoso. And it means to be thoroughly frightened, to cower down, or hide oneself for fear. It describes one who roves about in wretchedness, slinking down and crouching. She was a poor woman. In contrast to the many putting in much, she put in two small copper coins. The word coin is leptos. 
It's a thin, very small brass coin. It's worth a fraction of a penny. So on the surface of things, it would seem like her tiny contribution was of no value compared to those who were putting in much. That their service for God and for the temple was much greater than hers. And they should surely receive a much greater reward than she. They're putting in much, and she's putting in a couple little copper coins. So Jesus observes the appearance of things, and by the appearance, it appears one way. And friends, the Bible gives us many illustrations of the appearance of things. In Noah's day, there didn't appear to be any sign of rain in the skies. And a man building a big boat decade after decade seemed very crazy. No sign of rain. The appearance of things to Job's friends was that Job must be a great sinner in order to deserve the great suffering that was coming upon him. And that was their thesis. By the appearance of things, remember Jehu? When you first read about Jehu in the Bible, he's full of zeal. He puts to death the sons of the wicked king Ahab. He has such zeal, he gathers the prophets of Baal and he, he arranges for them to be killed. And if you're reading it for the first time, you're thinking, wow, this man has a great zeal for the honor and glory of God. It appeared that way. By the appearance of things, Joseph seemed to be abandoned by God. I mean, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's framed by Potiphar's wife. He's left to languish in prison. The cupbearer says, oh, I'll remember you to Pharaoh, and then forgets. Surely by the appearance of things, Joseph is an aband a man abandoned by God. David's seven brothers, as they were paraded in front of Samuel, appeared to be the Lord's anointed, didn't they? They were physically impressive. They had an impressive physical presence, leading Samuel to say, 1 Samuel 16, 6, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. One of these seven sons of David is surely one of the Lord's anointed. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, as king of the greatest empire in the world, would appear to have made it when he looked over the city from his palace roof and he reflected, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? The psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73 seemed to have it right. When he looked around at the wicked and he saw them prospering, they were on easy street. And here he's trying to keep his heart pure and he's suffering. And he says in Psalm 73, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. What's the sense? Appeared to be right. You come to the New Testament and surely the Pharisees and the scribes by their impressive holy garments, their pompous air, their, their long flowery prayers, their large phylacteries, they appeared to be very God-fearing men. Surely the rich farmer in Luke chapter 12 seems to have had it made, right? He had such a big crop, he tore down his barns to build bigger barns and said, soul, take it easy. You got things stored up for many years. Surely Martha, in her busyness to serve Jesus and the apostles, seemed to be a wonderful servant of the Lord. The apostle Paul with his numerous beatings and hardships, his imprisonments, his dangers and deprivations, 
seemed to be a no-account weakling who would do very little for the kingdom of God. And surely when Peter speaks in his second letter about certain scoffers and mockers who say, where's the promise of his coming? All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. What's the evidence that Jesus is coming back? He hasn't come back yet. And friends, surely by the appearance of things, the cross of Jesus of Nazareth, a man dying with the cry of abandonment on his lips, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With a pall of darkness covering the land, by the appearance of things, it seemed to be a great triumph for his enemies who had finally succeeding, succeeded in ridding the earth of this menace. So appearances, the Bible's full of them. Life is full of them. And no doubt you've been thinking of other things that appear to be a certain way. So Jesus observes. He observes the appearance of things. But then thirdly, Jesus observes the reality behind the appearance. Jesus did observe the appearance of things. Many rich people giving much, this poor widow giving a couple small copper coins. But he did more than that. His observant eye penetrated the appearance to see the reality behind it. And so after observing the rich putting in much and the poor widow putting in two piddling coins, he concludes, verse 43 and 44, calling his disciples to him, he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned all she had to live on. You see, the appearance didn't tell the whole story. In fact, if you followed the appearance, it would lead you away from the truth. The reality is this widow put in more than the rich. And you ask, by what strange manner of accounting can that be true? And the answer is, by God's standard, by God's count accounting, he is the God who doesn't see as man sees. As we learn from 1 Samuel 16, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. The proverb tells us all a man's ways are right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the motives. The Lord weighs the heart. What did Jesus see? He saw the wealthy give a lot of money, but he also saw what they did not give they gave out of their abundance, out of their surplus, out of their overage. In other words, there was no sacrifice in their giving. They would enjoy no fewer luxuries. They would eat no less lavishly. They would have no fewer conveniences for what they gave. Very simply, it was no skin off their nose. There was no faith or trust in God in their giving. But he also saw the widow. It wasn't easy for a widow to even make it in that day. How easily it would have been for her to justify, well, I'll put in one lap toss and keep at least one for myself. Or how easy to justify, I'm not going to give these two little coins. It's all I have. Let the rich take care of the temple. That's not my job. But she puts it all in. What does it signify? It signifies her dependence on God. It shows that she is casting herself completely on the mercy and kindness of God. It signifies her faith in God. 
She evidently believed God's word when God says, I will take care of the widow and the orphan. She believes him. She gives in faith in total dependence upon the Lord to provide for her. She gives in faith and she evidently gives out of love for God. She is convinced he will provide for my needs to his praise and honor. And so her small gift in God's scales ends up weighing more heavily than the gifts, the abundant gifts of many in the court of heaven. And so Jesus observed, Jesus observed the appearance of things, and then Jesus observed the reality behind the appearance. I want to make three applications from this passage. First, understand that God sees not as man sees. We learned that from Samuel. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And two times the Proverbs tell us all a man's ways are right in his own eyes. And one proverb says, but the Lord weighs the heart. And the other says, the Lord weighs the spirit. The Lord looks beyond what's being done on the outside, and he sees what's going on on the inside, in the heart, and in the motive. So God cares not only about quantity, he cares about quality. He doesn't care merely, merely about what is being done, but why it is being done. He cares about what a person's attitude toward him is. Is it being done in faith? And in trust of him, is it done out of love for him? He looks beyond the appearance of things, and he perceives the heart. Secondly, we need to evaluate our giving in light of this particular standard. I mean, this is a, a little story about giving, right? And so we would miss the point if we didn't apply it to our giving. Are we to give? Well, it's very clear that we are to give to the treasury of the Lord, and that's the treasury of the church, right? How much are we to give? Well, if you consider the Old Testament, they had to give a tithe twice a year, and then every three years they had to give a tithe. It amounts to about 23% that the Jews gave. But that factors in that this was also their tax, so when it comes to the new covenant, what are we to be giving to the Lord? I am one who is not convinced that the New Testament strictly speaks, teaches tithing. Now, if you can convince me of that, please do. However, I do see Genesis 14, before the law was given, and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. So there seems to be some principle of the tenth. And so I like to say that the spirit of the New Testament is very generous, and maybe we should begin with giving a tenth of our income to God. The point is that God really cares about the heart in our giving. Turn briefly with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, because the fullest passage we have on giving in the New Testament, I think, is right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Jesus is concerned about giving, giving to the work of the Lord, the treasury of the Lord. He weighs things differently than man does. So he's concerned about our giving. Well, here's a passage that teaches us about how we should be giving to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5. 
Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality or generous generosity. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints and this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And then verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty may become rich. Here's a passage that informs our new covenant giving to the work of the Lord. First, do you notice the source of it in verse 1? We, may, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which was given. And then he talks about their giving. Christian giving is, motive, is, is sourced in the grace of God. It takes a lot to part people from their money, doesn't it? We can be so white-knuckled in our grasp of our money and our things, but when the grace of God comes into a heart, then we're willing to give. The grace of God is what is the source of Christian giving. What is the motivation? Verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. What's the motivation for our giving? It is the giving of Jesus Christ. Jesus was rich with the glory of heaven. He became impoverished with humanity and with suffering unto death. That's our motivation to giving money because our Lord gave himself for us. That's our great motivation and what are the marks of new covenant giving? Well, he says in verse 5, they first gave themselves to the Lord. My friend, if you have not given yourself to the Lord, to Jesus Christ as his follower, he doesn't want your money. He wants you first before your money. And then they gave generously. It talks about the wealth of their liberality. They gave generously. And then... They gave sacrificially. They gave according to their ability beyond their ability. That's like the widow. We're going to trust God. We're going to give beyond what we think we can afford, trusting God to provide. And then they gave joyfully. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their generosity. So whether you are privileged to give much or whether in a, in a position to give little, this is what needs to mark your giving. It needs to be marked by trust in God to provide for you and love for God. And when you do that, whether you give much or little, you will have treasure in heaven. So this text does inform our giving. But thirdly and finally, in light of the story of the widow and her might, we need to evaluate our living in general by that standard. God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. We need to live our lives in light of that reality, that God is not looking merely at me externally with what I do. He's looking at my heart. He's weighing my heart. He's weighing my spirit. He's weighing my motive. Martha was busy, busy, busy for the Lord. And on the surface of things, you would think, what a wonderful servant of the Lord. But as you know, Jesus had to give her that, general rebu that gentle rebuke. Martha, Martha, 
You're worried about so many things. One thing, a few things are needful, really only one. Mary has chosen the better part. Instead of being in a frenzy of activity, which equated to spirituality, he said, look, Martha, it's not wrong to serve, but you need to quiet your heart. You need to sit at my feet. And we need to do that so that our serving will not be fleshly frenzy, but it'll be rightly motivated. Jehu appeared zealous for the Lord. We read a little later on, and I can remember the first time reading it. Maybe that's, that's a long time ago for me. But I'm thinking, Jehu, what a zealous man. And then I read on, and later I read, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin, from these Jehu did not depart. What? You mean he's not a good guy after all? He seems so good. He seems so jealous for the Lord's glory, and yet he's not. Perhaps this points us to the fact that we must not be selective in our obedience to the Lord. He appeared zealous in one area, but then in other areas, he was not at all zealous for the Lord, was not a good king in the end. We have to make sure that we're not being selective in the things that we're obeying. My wife and I remember a woman who all of a sudden began to dress very super modestly, dresses to the floor and to the neck, and found out that she was living immorally. And it was all smoke and mirrors. It's look over here to avoid seeing what was really going on. Are you suffering? Life is filled with afflictions. It appeared that Job must have been a great sinner because of his great sufferings. But we learn, because we read it, knowing the end of the story, that he wasn't suffering because of his great sin. He was suffering because of his great integrity. And obviously, when we're suffering, we do need to examine our hearts and ask, Lord, is, is this a chastisement from you? But if not, it may be just the Lord's fatherly training and discipline of you. And it's not because of your sin at all. It may be because of your integrity. Are you conscious of your weakness? That's a good place to be. The world may look down on weakness. The Apostle Paul said, I've come to glory in my weakness because in my weakness, the power of God is unleashed. What appears to be weak is really strong. As to Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, he appears to have made it, right? Is this not Babylon, the great which I have built? God made him walk on all fours and eat grass and humbled him until he acknowledged that God was the sovereign of the universe. But finally, I ask you, how do you look at Jesus Christ and his death on the cross? To some, he may appear to be a failed teacher, a false messiah, one who died in weakness and shame by Roman execution. Was the cross a sign of a failed mission, the just end of an imposter? To many in the first century, it was. In 1 Corinthians 1, we are told that to the Jews, Jesus was a stumbling block. That's not my Messiah. That's not my grand king dying in shame and humiliation, nakedness on, at the hands of the despised Romans. They stumbled over that. To the Greeks, it was foolishness. You mean wisdom is bound up in this Jewish man dying outside the walls of Jerusalem on a cross? And we have all these wise philosophers. Foolishness. Ah, but it goes on to say, to those who are called, 
Jews and Greeks, Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God. What appeared to be one of the greatest displays of weakness and shame and humiliation and defeat was the greatest display of power ever manifested on planet Earth. Because by that cross, because that, it didn't end with the cross, but what followed was the resurrection. And by that cross, Jesus would save an innumerable host who would be with God in heaven. What appeared to be weakness was the ultimate of God's power and victory. May the cross to you not be a picture of weakness and failure and shame and defeat, but may it be what it really is, a symbol of the power of God, the power that can save your soul if you put your trust in him. Let's pray, and then we'll sing hymn 37. Father, we confess that we often see with the eyes of flesh And yet you look not at the appearance of things, but you look at things as they really are. Give us your mind, give us your eyes to look beyond appearance and to see reality as you define it. Especially, Lord, if there are those here who have looked upon the cross as anything other than what it is, open their eyes to see the cross of your Son as the place of victory, the place of salvation, to which alone they can go to have their sins forgiven and to have eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name.